0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other, and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and
1: more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the legendary primatologist Jane Goodall. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello? Hello? Oh, hello. Oh, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. I'm sorry, um, but it took me a few minutes to get down here. I had some... Difficulties at home this morning. Home, home being synonymous with workplace, as you know these days. Um, is, is the technology working, Chris and Julie?
0: As much as we can make it. We're giving up. Okay. Now. We're making okay. Do
1: with what we have. All right. Um, Dr. Goodell. If you, if you would like to turn off your video, um, that will help the, the audio keep from breaking up a little bit, and you can relax and... And, uh... close your eyes and just listen
0: you mean I don't need to speak at all
1: you need to speak <laughs> but you don't need to look at me or or look at yourself <laughs> um, we met years ago at a gathering in Anhalqi that that gathering on that island off Istanbul, where yeah. the patriarch, the Greek Orthodox oh, yeah, yeah, patriarch yeah. was yeah. present, remember indeed, that? Indeed, yeah. I
0: remember it very well.
1: Yeah. I think you were on your way to Brazil from there. I was astonished then at your okay. travel schedule, and here we are in a different world. Um, So, Chris, should we go? Are we ready? Are we recording? I'm recording my end. Yes, we are recording uh, on Zoom and on your end. So you're... Okay. Um, Jane, I wonder... um, First of all, I want to say that we... You know, the original invitation for this was to do this, and we still will as part of an issue of Orion... Really about the sweep of your work and these sixty years since you went to Gombe, yeah, so I, we will speak about the pandemic, of course, because we are living in this extraordinary moment, but i I really do want to have to take a large view of of your work and what you've learned um, about what you've taught us about what you taught us through your science um, um as much about what it means to be human as about uh you know the work you did originally with chimpanzees so I just wanted to say that so we will get to the pandemic but i I hope to have an interview here that that will live for a long time and that people will be listening to um you know beyond at least this particular chapter of this of this crisis we're in so I just wanted to Frame, frame our conversation that way. Does that okay. make sense? It makes sense, okay. yes. Because I know you've been doing a lot of conversations about uh, this crisis, and, and I want to pull back a little bit from that. Um, so I want to start um, where I always start, uh, which is I, I wonder um, how if I ask you about the spiritual background of your childhood, of your earliest life, however you understand that word now, Um, Where does that memory take you?
0: Well, I certainly wouldn't have thought of anything spiritual when I was a child. No, my grandfather was a congregational minister. I never met him. Mm. Um, But we, mom, my sister and I came to live in this house where I am now with my grandmother and mom's two sisters.
1: So, was he the husband of Danny? Was he that grandfather yep. of your grandmother That's you right. called Danny? That's right. Okay, all right. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, he was the husband of Danny. And I wish I'd met him because he sounds completely wonderful, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, we sometimes went to church. We weren't particularly religious. And I love to spend most of my time outside in the garden. Was pre television, pre laptops, pre cell phones, and all right. the rest of it. Right. And so we had uh, books and imagination and nature. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot from nature and I was outside and I loved climbing trees. I had one special tree which I'm looking at right now, hmm. beach. And I spent hours and hours up beach feeling close to the sky and the birds. And I suppose that was the closest to some kind of spiritual feeling with nature that I had, although I wouldn't have thought of it as that in, at that time.
1: Right. You've you've said that you really feel like you loved animals and loved nature. I think from the womb onwards. From the womb onwards, yes. When I was <laughs> one and a half.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, My first serious observation of animals was four and a half when I waited four hours to see a hen lay an egg. Yes. I have to say that it was my supportive mother, uh, I think, who's enabled me to do what I've done because she didn't know where I was. I was hiding in a hen house waiting because nobody would
1: tell me where the hole was where the egg came out. And it wasn't logical, was it? It was it was a logical observation that it didn't make sense. No. <laughs> it wasn't obvious. Oh, yeah. so I saw a hen go
0: into a hen house where they Mm -hmm. slept at night and the nest boxes were around the edge. And I thought, ah, you know, she Mm -hmm. must be going to lay an egg. So I crawled after her, which was a big mistake. She flew out with squawks of fear. And so in my little four and a half year old mind, I must have thought, well, no hen will lay an egg here. There were, I think, five other hen houses. And so I went into an empty one and waited. And apparently I waited about four hours. And they'd even called the police. They were all searching for me. We'd gone up for a holiday onto this farm. And my mother must have been really nervous. You can imagine your little four-year-old girl. has has disappeared. But when she saw me rushing towards the house, she saw my shining eyes and sat down Mm. to hear the wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. And the reason I love that story is You know, isn't that the making of a little scientist, the curiosity, asking questions, not getting the right answer, deciding to find out for yourself, making a mistake, not giving up, learning Mm -hmm. patience. And, you know, a different mother, how dare you go off without telling us, don't you dare do it again, might have crushed that early scientific curiosity. And I might not have done what I've done.
1: Yeah. You know, um... In these, it it strikes me, um, there's another story that you tell. So let me just say, you, so we're speaking in 2020, um, just about 60 years after you went to, first went to the Gombe Stream Chimpanzee Reserve in Tanganyika, which is now Tanzania, July 1960. I was born in that year, in 1960, a few months after you went to Gombe, and I'm so aware that what you began to see and study and turn into scientific observation there um, really transformed the world I grew up learning about. So you wrote In the Shadow of Man in 1971, and people read that and it changed their understanding, I think, not just of chimpanzees, but of animals and of themselves. And, and that uh, formed, you know, what, what, what felt true to me, scientifically true. Um, I, I was also struck, like, the story you just told about watching the hen laying the egg, the stories about you taking worms to bed um, as a child or your love of your dog, Rusty. Um, there's another story that struck me when I was reading... Um, I think this was in in the Shadow of Man, about when your mother was with you for a while uh, in your in the early part of the study. She went back to England. You were first alone, and how you're walking around, kind of naming the aspects of the forest. Good morning, peak. Hello, stream. Oh, wind! For heaven's sake, calm down! And then, of course, that echoes stories that are so alive um, in our culture. and even the ones that influenced you—the Doolittles, Tarzan, Wind in the Willows—you know. I think as a parent, um, children, and adults in the presence of children see aspects of, natu- of the natural world as animate and alive, and they give things names. So that the that the human imagination has always inclined this way. So, in, there's one way in which, as I as I read the sweep of your story, I understand that you one thing you did is you helped substantiate an intuitive understanding and bond that human beings have. You put data to the truth such stories carried. Well, when I
0: first went to to Gombe, nobody else had studied chimpanzees in the wild. Right. Uncharted territory. And, of course, the first problem was that the chimps ran away as soon as they saw me. They'd never seen anything like this white ape before. Yeah. And it was very wonderful at that time that my mother was there. The reason she was there is because the British authorities, you know, Tanganyika was the last outpost of the crumbling British empire back then. And they wouldn't take responsibility for me coming on my own. They said, "Uh, well, I have to bring someone with me. So she volunteered. And so she was there to boost my morale in those early days because I get back dejected. The chimps had run away again. And, she was pointing out that on this peak that I discovered, I used my binoculars and she said, you know, you're learning how the chimpanzees make beds at night, bending the branches over. You're learning how they sometimes travel alone and sometimes in small groups and sometimes in big excited gatherings. You're learning the foods that they eat and the calls that they make. So you're learning more than you think. Uh-huh. And it's okay. really okay. sad that she left just two weeks before that breakthrough observation, when the one chimp who had just begun to lose his fear, darling David Greybeard, I saw him using and making tools to fish for termites. And, you know, that was the turning point. That was what enabled my mentor, Louis Leakey, to go to the National Geographic Society and they agreed to fund the research when the six months' money ran out. Mm-hmm. Six months' money came from an American um, philanthropist. I'm grateful to him still. Mm. And and they sent Hugo van Nowek to take photographs and make film. He became my first husband. Yes. And it was his photographs and film in the geographic magazines and documentaries that forced science to believe what I was saying, because before that, many of them had said, well, why should we believe what she says? She hasn't been to college. She's uh, just come out from England. (laughs) She's just a girl. But when they saw Hugo's film, then they had to believe.
1: When they saw what you saw. Yeah. Um, But I, I do think it's worth underlining, because it's so hard for people now to imagine that... As late as, you know, the latter half of the 20th century, um, human beings didn't thought that we were the only creatures who made tools. Oh, wait.
0: uh, That's what Western science believed.
1: Mm -hmm. If somebody
0: at that time had gone to the pygmies in the rainforest in in Congo, they could have told you. I've sat and talked to them. They've watched it. Right. It was, you know, man the toolmaker. It was Osman Hill who defined us thus. And so you know, it, it was um, it was a it was a shock, I think, to the scientific world. And there's when, yeah. when I finally was made to go to Cambridge University by Lewis Leakey, he said I needed a degree. He wouldn't always be around to get money.
1: And also, you were the eighth person in the history of Cambridge to come in. You came in to do graduate work without an undergraduate yes, degree, which was almost was unheard no of. Signed yes. for that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I was greeted yeah. with scientists who said, "Well, uh, you've done your study wrong. You shouldn't have named the chimpanzees. They should have had numbers. That's science. Mm-hmm. And you can't talk about personality, mind, capable of problem solving, or emotions, because those are unique to us." But the dog you mentioned, Rusty, he taught me when I was a child that that certainly wasn't true. We are not the only beings on the planet with personalities, minds and emotions. And we are part of and not separate from the rest of the animal kingdom. I was actually taught, and it's in the textbooks, that the difference between us and all other animals is one of kind.
1: Right. That's such an important distinction for you. And would you would you would you elaborate on what you mean when, when why it's so important that there is there isn't a difference in kind in kind. What what does all, that word hold? That well, that, that it, phrase. The hold?
0: opposite of it is degree. The difference is degree. In other words, following Darwin's theory of evolution, you know, the species gradually evolve and we're just one of the species. And mm-hmm. so it you know, I, I I just could not believe that the scientists were saying that. And talk to many of the religions, talk to the Buddhists, and talk to the indigenous people. They believe that we're part of the animal kingdom. They believe animals are our brothers and sisters.
1: Right. And right. That's it. You and Western yeah.
0: science, and I think it probably stemmed from religion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: God made. Man, God made man different, and God made man to have dominion over the birds and the animals and the fish and so on. But that is a wrong translation. I've got Hebrew friends, and the yes. original Hebrew word, which I do not remember, um, but I've written it down in one of my books, the meant something book, the,
1: more like steward, yeah, not dominion. Right, the the dominion, but but that that that. That point of view, that way of thinking and seeing also penetrated Western science. Um, yeah, it, it, it seems to me that um, the significance of your work in the self-understanding of our species, it, you know, there's so many ways to talk about it, but it also this, these observations reconnected us. As you said, that we are part of the animal kingdom, that we are Part of nature, not just in our bodies, has another way you say it that there's social and emotional continuity uh, with the natural world, that we're creatures, <laughs> as rather than all the other creatures being creatures, as another way people think, talk about, I think, those Genesis stories. Yeah, well, um,
0: it's just very arrogant, mm-hmm. very arrogant to think that way. And, you know, some people still do. The other thing which very dangerous about science. I was told at Cambridge that um, you have to be absolutely objective and you must not have empathy with your subject. Mm -hmm. And to me, that right from the beginning was so wrong because when I was watching a chimpanzee family, for example, and one of the young ones did something a little strange, and so because I was empathetic towards them, I thought, well, if, you know, if they were human, they do it because of whatever, and that gives you a platform, and you can stand on that platform, and then try to analyze what you've seen in a scientific way. But it's the empathy that it gives you know, it's that intuition, that aha moment, which you wouldn't get if you didn't have empathy. I don't think, and also, the cold scientific approach. I believe has led to a lot of suffering on this planet,
1: yes, I mean, you also experienced because I think you were open, because you were seeing, observing. Um, you also experienced empathy on the part of the um the chimpanzees you were studying, right? I mean, that there's that that moment with David Graybeard that you've described about offering him a piece of fruit, which he did not take. But he took your hand instead. No, he took, Um,
0: dropped it and then gently squeezed my fingers, which is how chimpanzees reassure
1: each other. Right. Which you understood as him sensing your motivation and honoring it.
0: Well, you know, the thing was we totally understood each other in a language that clearly predated human spoken language, the language of. Of uh, you know the language of um, what I want to say the the gestural and postural language it's almost the same holding hands patting one another kissing um, embracing you know our gestures just, just when we communicate non verbally are uh, virtually the same as the chimpanzees okay. we also swagger and shake our fists and um, <laughs> male chimpanzees sometimes remind me of number of human male politicians. I have to say. <laughs> right? they swagger and they bristle and they try to look big and important and intimidate by bunching their lips in a furious scowl. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. Um, so n- 1960, you went to Cambay um you you began to write. Your work became well known, as you said, on many ways. It, you've described 1986. In 1986, you went to a. You helped organize a conference of primatologists in Chicago, around chimpanzee behavior in different environments, and and you've actually described that not just as a turning point, but in some places as a road to Damascus moment. Um, could you tell that story? What happened to you there? Yes. Well,
0: by that. I'm, you know, by 1986, I had my PhD, I built up a research station, and best of all, I could spend hours alone in the rainforest, and that's where I felt that deep spiritual connection to, yeah. to the natural world, and also came to understand the interconnectedness of all living things in this tapestry of life, where each species, no matter how insignificant, plays a probably vital role and a whole pattern. And I I imagine continuing in that way, well, for the rest of my life. Why not? And then we organized. It was with the um, then director of the Chicago Academy of Sciences, Dr. Paul Heltney. And it was when I published that big book, The Chimpanzees of Gombe, Patterns of Behavior. Yeah. And it had all my scientific observations, but it also had all the stories. Because a story, you know, science is apt to scoff at a story. They're apt to scoff at anecdotes. But an anecdote can be a very carefully recorded observation. It's an mm-hmm. anecdote because you only see it once. But those those anecdotes are sometimes the key to unlocking a puzzle. They're terribly important. And a collection of anecdotes stories, um, has been very, very important in my research. So anyway, there I was, still learning. In fact, we're still learning about the chimpanzees today. Not me, but my team. Anyway, there I am, arranging to bring the, there were, I think, six other study sites back then. And we invited scientists from each, and also a few from non-invasive captive research, like big big zoo groups, for example. And as you said, the main object was to see how chimp behavior differed from environment to environment, or maybe it didn't differ. But we had one session on conservation and one session on conditions in some captive situations. And both were utterly shocking. I mean, I knew there was deforestation going on. I was totally unaware of the the extent of it. And that's way back then in 1986, chimpanzee numbers decreasing, the rise of the bushmeat trade as the commercial hunting of wild animals for food, the live animal hunting, shooting mothers so that you can sell their babies locally mm-hmm. as pets or trade them overseas. Yeah. And that was a huge shock. And then the captive situation That was even worse, seeing our closest relatives who can live for up to, well, more than 60 years in five foot by five foot medical research labs, surrounded by iron bars, totally alone, nothing to do. Just because their bodies are so like ours that we share 98.6% of our DNA and we have similarities in the immune system and the composition of the blood and uh, so on. And with scientists seizing on that, ah, these will be the animals that we can experiment on to get new vaccines and and, uh, Mm cures, but refusing to admit the equally striking similarities in psychology and and behavior. Right, right. So I, I didn't make a decision. I just knew when I left, I gained so much from the chimpanzees I had to try and do something to help. That's why I call it my Damascus moment. It was like yeah. St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He has this, what some people have thought of as an epileptic fit, but I didn't have an epileptic fit. But <laughs> right, I went right. as a scientist and I left as a, I suppose you call me an activist or something like that. It just just happened. I knew I had to do something.
1: Mm-hmm. It's... It's... um. It's quite astonishing to me, too, though, that, you know, you, you, the other, the next move you made really was very similar to the approach you took, the skills you had learned and cultivated in studying uh, in Gombe. You, you looked closely at what was going on and, um, so when you you know you said you became an activist, but you know that's a that's a simple word. I mean, the seeing the plight of chim, chimpanzees then led you, in fact, to be an activist in terms of the plight of human beings, um, that led to forests disappearing and to these kinds of atrocities um, perpetrated on. On, on these animals, on our, our, uh, our, our kin. Um, I mean, again, you know, when the, it seems, to, I, I believe that the title of, of your book, In the Shadow of Man in 1971, was that chimpanzees live in the shadow of man as we had evolved to overshadow them with our powers of thought and speech. But what you also then picked up was how we had evolved and become a threat the natural world from which we emerged and with which we remained in kinship.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's a big puzzle. The biggest difference between us chimps and other animals is the explosive development of our intellect. Mm -hmm. So, because science is now acknowledging that, you know, animals are not the, the machines they once thought, there's a huge flurry of information, very exciting, about animal intelligence. Yes. It ranges from, you know, chimpanzees using computers in clever ways and elephants with their very close social bonds and strong relationships between herd members and crows who turn out to be able to actually use and make tools. And pigs. Pigs we can mm. come back to factory farms later perhaps, but pigs mm. um, you know, they're they're as intelligent as dogs, more intelligent than some. And there's an amazing, incredible, if you Google, if you haven't done already, if you Google Pig Casso, not Picasso the artist, but Pig <laughs> Okay. Three, three videos pop up and pick the one with the yellow board around the geographic one, and you mm. will be amazed. And you know now we know the octopus is highly intelligent, yes, and we know trees communicate with each exactly.
1: other. Exactly plant life, the intelligence yes. of plants, yes. yeah, so yeah,
0: you know it's um, here we are with this intellect that's enabled us to do something very different from all the animal uh, successes. And that's design a rocket, for example, that went up to Mars and a rocket has been crawling around taking photos for us to see. So at one time people thought maybe we can live on Mars. Well, we now know that's not possible. And bizarre, isn't it, that the most intellectual creature surely that's ever lived on the planet is destroying its only home. And I always believe it's because there's a disconnect between that clever, clever brain and human heart, love and compassion. And i truly believe only when head and heart work in harmony can we attain our true human potential
1: i think also the science of the human body is showing us how artificial that even that kind of distinction is between the head and the heart and the gut right yeah they're all of a piece
0: it's all interconnected with
1: Yes, we yes. can't
0: do without all the bits, or oh, we can get artificial ones sometimes. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, but again, you know that 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 empathic scientific eye that you brought in Gombe of like wondering how you might behave in that situation. You you also so you know this statement you just made, which is so condemning this reality is so condemning of how we use our capacities our intelligence our potential our power but you there's also a story about you know after a few years after that conference that you 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 you'd, you'd seen um, human conditions kind of on the perimeter of of the park but when you flew over gombe in a small plane um, that was another moment that shaped the approach you took to yeah to to doing your part um, yeah. with our species I, mean, I i've always believed that if you want to really
0: understand and to be able to talk to people about something that you need first hand experience which is why i forced myself into the medical research labs and began a long long struggle but Which finally success, but we'll maybe talk about that later. But
1: to I, to for, to, uh, to get this to stop research research on chimpanzees.
0: Yes, the reason yes. they stopped
1: it, you know, my battle was on ethical grounds. But actually, I'm
0: thrilled to find the reason that it was um, stopped by Francis Collins, the director of NIH, yeah. because of all the experiments that were being done on the NIH chimpanzees, about 400 of them. After 18 months, a team of 11 scientists reported, they were told each experiment asked two questions. One, is it it beneficial to human health? Two, is it potentially beneficial? And after 18 months, there was not one single experiment that was either beneficial or potentially beneficial. So that's why they were released into sanctuary. But... You know, so that, that was one it took a long time and many, many people became involved. Mm-hmm. And maybe I should divert a little bit here just to say that in dealing with these people in the labs, you know, a lot of animal rights people stopped talking to me. They said, How can you sit down with them? Right. Said, if you don't sit down and talk to people, how can you how can you expect they're going to change? So I also had previously learned the value of don't be confrontational. So I told them stories because I don't believe that people change because they're bullied. I believe people change because they change from within. Mm -hmm. So I didn't blame them for what they were doing. I just gave stories and showed pictures of the Gombe chimps lazing around and grooming and playing and swinging through the trees. Then in their minds... They'd probably never even seen that before. So, anyhow, that's how I uh, how I dealt with them. But then, yes, going to Africa to learn firsthand about, you know, why were chimpanzees disappearing, what was going on, and learning a great deal about it. But even as I was learning about the chimps, I was learning about the, the crippling poverty of so many people living in and around chimp habitat. No, the lack of help right because the
1: what you saw. I mean, one of the things that, that 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 conference was about the incredible clearing of forests, right? But you you got curious about why that was happening from a human perspective. Well, I knew why it was perspect- happening.
0: Yeah, I knew why it was happening. It was happening because after World War II, the big logging companies divided up the world. I was there at a conference where they boasted about it. Hmm. They actually invited me to give a keynote. People I, I don't quite know why people do these things, but anyway, um, and <laughs> so they were they were going in and, and looking, and some of them were being fairly responsible and others weren't. And at the same time, very irresponsible people were going in and clear-cutting and making money out of selling timber and clearing land to grow crops and that sort of thing. But anyway, um It was, as you say, flying over Gombe in 1990. And you have to realize that in 1960 and even in 1970, Gombe was part of this forest belt that stretched right across equatorial Africa to the west coast, well, chimp habitat, all the way across. By 1990, um, I flew over to my horror, a tiny island of forest, surrounded by completely bare trees. The hillsides are eroding because it's very steep valleys gone along the shore of Lake Tanganyika. And it's a whole lot from the rift escarpment of valleys coming down, very thick forest in the valleys. And there were more people living there, clearly, than the land could afford to support. And they were cutting down trees in these steep valleys, all except the very steepest ones, because the the land had become infertile and overused, and they were struggling to grow food to feed their families, and they were too poor to buy it from somewhere else. So that's when it hit me. If we don't help the people, if we don't try and find ways that they can make a living without destroying their environment, we can't even try to save the chimpanzees. So that began JGI's... Um, Takari is our method of community-based conservation, very holistic and going everything from restoring fertility to the overused land, permaculture, agroforestry, reforestation. Yeah.
1: Uh, micro, you do microcredit micro credit and keep credit. girls in school. Microcredit for mainly
0: women, um, scholarships to keep girls in school, and... Workshops to teach uh, about family planning. We don't go into the villages to talk about family planning. The local people go in, not just women, men too. Mm -hmm. And the women are so thrilled. And and the men now, I mean, they used to have big families to support them and do the work on the farm. The farms are so small now because the population has expanded so much. The young people go off to try and make money in the towns, and they usually fail and come back. And so you have a situation where people can no longer afford to educate their children, and they desperately want to. So being able to plan your family through family planning information has made a huge difference.
1: It, it's like you looked at the ecosystem that gave rise to poverty and, and that gave rise to this distorted um, relationship to the land, which had these ripple effects on the, the chimpanzees and the other great apes, yeah. um, right? And that you started stitching an ecosystem back together again.
0: Well, they did. That's the
1: point. They did. Yeah. So they, they were they your partners. Did. They You they listened to comments. them, I think, and yep. let them they, lead. Yeah. Yep, they have become our partners. Mm-hmm. I mean, at first,
0: it's what are these white people doing, coming in and taking our land, and chimps are more important than people. But after a while, they realized, you know, because the first, the first approach was not a group of arrogant white people going into these poor villages. It was carefully selected uh, local Tanzanians. They didn't even have PhDs. They weren't scary they just worked for NGOs in agriculture and forestry and education and health. They went in and asked the people what they thought we could do to make their lives better. So yeah. that's how it began. And now, uh, now that they've understood and realized, they probably did before, but they're now articulating it, that they depend on the forest. and Protecting it isn't just for the wildlife, it's for their own future.
1: They need right, to so work. they now participate in
0: and the work. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, they've learned to use, um, they go to workshops to learn to use smartphones and eye tablets, and they go into their forest reserves because each village has a forest reserve. Uh, and we're now at 104 villages throughout the whole of the chimpanzee range in Tanzania. And in all of them, there are one or two volunteers who learned to be forest monitors and they're very proud of it. And they chose what they would record between them. They had a meeting, mm. you know, like a legally cut tree or an animal trap, or on the other side sighting of a chimp or a nest or a leopard paw print. And so they have the tools for the for their own conservation.
1: Did did roots and shoots emerge out of Takari? No, the, the roots ticari. and shoots
0: emerge because our. Takari was expensive to uh, operate. We were already uh, starting in some other African countries. You know, I got kind of roped in when I made that first trip around seven African chimpanzee range states. And uh, (laughs) so I, I was going around the world, gradually further and further around the world, talking to people about the problems in Africa and the reason for them and hoping to raise Certainly awareness, but maybe some money. And I kept meeting young people. This was in 1990, young people who seemed to have lost hope. I'm talking mostly about university students, some high school. And they were mostly just apathetic, but some were depressed, really depressed, and some were angry. And when I asked them Mm. why they felt that way, they all said, more or less the same and that's in Asia in North and South America in Europe Um, and by then I hadn't gone to the Middle East but uh, Mm. I know they say the same there now because they said you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it so you've heard that saying we haven't inherited this planet from our ancestors we borrowed it from our children but we have not borrowed we've Mm. stolen and we're Mm. still stealing today
1: Yes, but these games collect- are
0: as alive now. Yes. Uh, more I mean, alive. You mm-hmm. know, when they said there's nothing they could do about it, and I thought, no, no, there's a window of time. Bigger window then than now, but uh, get together. So we had a meeting. The nine students who came to me with their problems in Dar es Salaam uh, were concerned about dynamiting, which was destroying the coral reefs in the ocean. They were concerned about the street children with no homes, they were concerned about the mistreatment of stray dogs. They were concerned about the poaching of their animals in their national parks and why wasn't the government doing anything about it. Right. And so we then had a big meeting with all their friends and Roots and Shoots was born February 1991 with the message, every single one of us makes an impact on the planet every single day and... Um, those of us who are lucky enough to have the means can make ethical choices in the kind of difference we make. And then we decided because of the interconnection of everything that each group between them would themselves choose projects to help people, projects to help animals, projects to help the environment. They would discuss it, plan it, roll up their sleeves and take action, actually do something about it. I I,
1: I love. Would you um the the all of the nuance of the of the title of the name roots and shoots. I think also really speaks to the philosophy of this. Would you just describe that? I'd love
0: to. Yes. Mm.
1: Um, I've already
0: said how I love trees. Yes. (laughs) Um, I think my probably my very favorite individual tree has to be beech in my garden. And when beech began to grow over 100 years ago, actually, um, it was from a pretty tiny seed. And if I had picked it up at that time, it would have seemed so small and weak, a little growing shoot and a few little roots. And yet there is what I call magic. It's a life force in that little seed, so powerful that to reach the water that the tree will need, those little roots can work through rocks and eventually push them aside. And that little shoot to reach the sunlight, which the tree will need for photosynthesis, can work its way through cracks in a brick wall and eventually knock it down. And so we see the bricks and the walls as all the problems, social and environmental, that we have inflicted on the planet. So it's a message of hope hundreds and thousands of young people around the world can break through and can make this a better world. So we're now in um, 80, 85 countries and growing, and we've got members in kindergarten, university, and everything in between. And it's my greatest reason for hope because everywhere I go, these young people are telling me, showing me, shining eyes, what they're doing, what they've been doing, what they plan to do to make the world better.
1: You know, there's—I'm I, I, I'm, going to struggle to say this as eloquently as I want to, but it feels to me like there's a through line from um, your your early science um, to this. The seeing and naming the dignity and possibility of an individual, um, which you did with the chimpanzees, right, as you said, just naming them, which which you had to have fights about, um, Early on, but there's something in human life, and you know, something we didn't speak about is how your childhood was also the, the the background of the world, and your childhood was was war and and the Holocaust, which was something that really you saw at a at the age at which you were coming into ethical life as an as an adolescent, and. Um, when human beings only see other human beings as collections of people, that has a dehumanizing effect and shifts the way it it becomes possible for them to be treated. Um, but the inverse of that, and that's true of animals as well, as you've said, we we don't think of wild, we think of wildlife species, but but every individual life, including the life of an animal, Matters and the and then the flip side of this is is what you just said about action and organizing and and approaching the challenges in our world with an absolute conviction in the power of the individual, the force that one life can have.
0: Yes, and you never know, do you You look at a child and you think, you know, this child uh, might be the next uh, Winston Churchill or Donald Trump. This child might become a Hitler or a, um, Dalai Lama. I mean, you, you just don't know. There's that, that individuality. And honestly, when I was at Cambridge, I was told that the individual wasn't important and individuality was not talked about. And I was, again, reprimanded for, for talking about the difference between individuals, not the general behavior chimpanzees, which is what I was supposed to be doing. Isn't it lucky <laughs> right. I never, that I never wanted to be a scientist? I wanted to be a naturalist. Yes. You know, women weren't scientists back then
1: mm-hmm.
0: when I was 10. <laughs> mm
1: you've you've actually called you you called the you, you have named this that there's this we suffer from just meism it is. <laughs> because because I think that what you're also bringing home in roots and shoots to young people in all your work now is that um that the that the the importance of ordinary acts in any life i mean you said this a minute ago that 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 the way we eat the way we buy. You know, the way we live, um, if enough of us, and it's such simple math, yep. m- but it's hard for human beings to internalize that if enough of us do those things in our or- the ordinary fabric of our days, all at the same time, that has power. Yeah, has power.
0: <clears throat> Definitely has power. And, um, you know, we, we we so often hear, think globally, act locally, but if you think globally, you you, you can't help but be depressed. I mean, you, you have <laughs> right, to right, right. You twist it around, act locally, see the difference you make, see how you clean up mm-hmm. a stream, see how you've raised money to help a homeless person off the street, see how you've uh, lobbied the government um, to protect a piece of woodland from another shopping, um, shopping mall, and then realize that other people are doing the same, making the same difference around the world. And then you dare think globally.
1: Yeah, you know it's something you said a minute ago about how you were discouraged from using anecdotes in your science. But you said, you know, anecdotes say say they often stand for something so much bigger than themselves. And you said you said it. And any anecdote can become a key to unlocking a puzzle. Yeah, which is also a wonderful way to think about individual agency. Yeah, I know. I. You mentioned In the Shadow of
0: Man. Well, because it's Gombe 60, uh, one of the things I've been doing in lockdown is reading. First, I read books to children uh, to try and amuse them. Then I thought, well, as it's Gombe be 60 anniversary, I'll read In the Shadow of Man. And we're illustrating it with some never before seen uh, photographs that I have. Oh,
1: had. wonderful.
0: And, you know, I've now finished reading all but one chapter. And I've spent the last week, I would say, sorting through, I don't know, 400 black and white photographs that the geographic handed over to me when they finished, uh, you know, supporting the work and trying to amalgamate from two geographic articles and three books.
1: It's been a chaos. Well, I'm curious. Is this the first time that you've read through your work in this sustained way? Absolutely. And honestly, yeah. um, What did you learn? Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Uh All these stories. I'm back there. I'm back. And, you know, I think the things I saw then, because we did the feeding area, which of course we can't do now because we know about disease transmission. But back then everybody had a feeding station. Well, when I began, there was almost nobody out there doing anything, but, um, you know the details that I was able to record about the personalities and the characters and the fun things. Mm. And it just all come back to me, making me very nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> like the movie Jane, that made me very nostalgic too.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. So yes, we are speaking in the middle of a pandemic. Um, in this 60th year of the beginnings of your work in Gombe, you spent your 86th birthday with your sister, who has the same birthday. Yes, six six feet apart. <laughs> four,
0: four, four years
1: apart. We are four, four years apart. Right. Yep. Um. And I guess in lockdown, in your back in your grandmother Danny's home. That's right. It's family home, mm-hmm. and I'm
0: here with Judy, the sister. And her daughter, daughter's fiance, and um, her two virtually grown-up grandsons. And for a while, my son, because he got stuck here, he came over from Tanzania to get a visa, a work visa. And uh, then lockdown came, and he couldn't leave, so he's stuck here. <laughs> can't really go back to Tanzania right now anyway.
1: You know, I'm, I'm curious if this has also struck you that Um, for all that we've known in recent decades that we were connected to each other, that we are embodied creatures um, and that we're connected to each other and to the natural world. This virus has brought that home, you know, in a way that markets never did.
0: Yeah, well, I mean... The tragedy is that we brought it on ourselves. I mean, it's been predicted for so long that there would be more epidemics and pandemics, zoonotic diseases that jump from animals to people. And it's because of our disrespect of nature, our disrespect of animals, that this has happened. Like, you know, cutting down forests, forcing animals closer together, forcing some animals into contact with people making opportunity for a virus to jump over, spill over, as they call it. But then even worse, we hunt, kill, eat animals. We sell them as bushmeat in Africa, Asia, and even in the U.S. too. And we sell them off to the wildlife markets in Asia, where they're in horrible, unsanitary, crowded conditions of, of terrible cruelty. And they may be killed on the spot. And then the buyer and the seller can be contaminated with blood, urine, feces, perfect for a virus to to jump ship, to jump from the animal to the human, create a new disease, which is what this COVID-19 is. And we mustn't forget that we do the, you know, people point fingers at China and it's all the wet markets. Um, Actually, most wet markets do not sell wildlife at all. They're just like farmer's markets. Mm. But, you know, think of our factory farms. Think what we do to the pigs and the cattle and the, and the ducks and the hens and the geese. And think of how crowded and unsanitary their conditions are. Right. And indeed, um, epidemics have started. One started in America from, I think it was cows in Iowa, and another one from uh, factory farm pigs in somewhere in Asia. And so, you know,
1: MERS began from yeah. So this has in, in principle, it, this hasn't surprised you. It doesn't shock you that sure. this that this no. happened.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I mean, do you know the book um, Spillover by David Kwaman, the Geographic writer?
1: I haven't read it.
0: Oh well, you should. I mean, I got to know him really well because we went on a long expedition through the Congo together, mm. and uh, so I mean, I I've known for a long time that this is happening. its actually happening all the time. Mm -hmm. But usually it's just an epidemic and it's stopped, but this time it's gone all around the world. And just imagine if the next one, if we don't pay attention, if we don't stop this disrespect, the next one could be as infectious as COVID-19 because it's very infectious. Mm -hmm. But the death rate is relatively low. But imagine if the death rate was like that of Ebola, another yeah. virus, another zoonotic yeah. disease. And you know, HIV <clears throat> began from the African bushmeat markets. You're right. Chopping up chimps and eating them.
1: Yeah. You know, this is a this is a slightly different um direction with this, but I was reading you and your your early books in particular as this was breaking out as COVID-19 was, as we were understanding that we were in the middle of a pandemic and when the lockdown began, which is such an unprecedented experience, um, for us. And this, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, this whole phenomenon of social distancing, um, I was we were heading into social distancing, and I'm reading you uh describing grooming and that 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 social grooming i mean, this is you know a line for you know is the most peaceful, most relaxing, most friendly form of physical contact for the chimpanzee and for many other animals too. It just made me wonder how you because I think there's been a lot of And I'm sure there will continue to be a lot of uh, thinking about what we lose when we lose physical contact, even as we're being very inventive and finding new ways to stay in touch. But we don't have that physical touch. And I realized in your work that in the animal kingdom, of which we are part, that plays such an important role. And I think it explains some of the dislocation we feel. I'm just curious if that's something you've thought about or how you would have thought about social distancing and what it means for us.
0: Well, I've never really thought about it in connection with um, the, the need for physical contact that that we have. But certainly, they go together. But uh, I think as long as people have a family and they're all isolating together, they can mm-hmm. have the
1: physical contact. The people- you know, I'm just curious about what effect you think it has on us as humans, as a species, when that gets restricted. Knowing, as as you do know... Well, it, um, it's very clear yeah. that some people get deeply depressed. Yeah. And, but you know, the,
0: the other side of it is that because it's so terrible for some people, especially. I mean, imagine being told you got to lock down in an inner city or a, a yeah. township in South Africa. Just imagine, like twelve people in one tiny house. Of course, it's it's terrible. And then some people are lucky. I'm lucky. This is a big house, and it's got a garden, and we can, we've can we always been allowed to walk because it's out near the sea, there's lots of fresh air. Um, we're not supposed to go shopping or anything like that, so I don't like it anyway, so that's fine. But um, it's brought out the best in so many people who are offering, you know, think of the people on the front line l- risking and losing their lives. Yeah. And think of the people who put out messages saying if you're feeling sad or lonely and you want somebody to talk to, here's my phone number, or offering to go and collect groceries for people who are not able to come out of their house. So the effect on people of not having physical contact, uh, some of those people have dogs, but now people are being told they can't have contact with their dog, and that. Tragedy there is that people understand. The dog doesn't. Dogs need contact. Right, right, right. So it's right. affecting people very deeply, this lack of mm-hmm. contact. It's the most important thing. I think it stems from, you know, the contact we have with our mothers in the womb and then the contact, uh, at least of the good mothers, who spend a lot of time cradling their child.
1: Hmm. Um, in, in your book, um, reason for hope, you, you use the language of moral evolution and even spiritual evolution as your hope, um, for our species. And I wonder, um, what, what that, what that means for you and how do you think about the contours of that challenge? You know that was in 1999 that you wrote that book. Um, yeah, 20 years on, yeah. in, in a changed place and in a strange, strange time. Yes. Well, I think that during
0: um, during this time, you know, we we we've seen a very big move towards more moral behavior greater understanding yes and you can just trace it very clearly in our attitude to animals around the world the growth of these uh, organizations that are protecting animals for cruelty and then on the other hand you've got the proliferation of organizations trying to help victims human victims of domestic violence and orphans and refugees and migrants so we're we're getting there but some people are much more uh, much 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 further advanced than others, I
1: think. But, yeah. But isn't that
0: hmm? sorry, what? No, I was going to, just gonna say no, you say what you were going to say first.
1: Well, I think that something that something that you Became aware of in your study of chimpanzees over time, and that you've always been aware of in the human condition is our capacity for great empathy and and play and creativity and intelligence, and also cruelty yeah, and the dark hmm
0: It's a,
1: you know, but I think
0: okay, I was shocked to find chimpanzees have this dark, aggressive side like us made them more like us than I thought they were, which is a yeah. pretty sad statement to have to make. But I think only humans are capable of true evil because a chimpanzee will kill, but it's a spur of the moment. It's it's an emotion. It's an emotional response to a situation. Whereas we can sit down far away from an intended victim and in cold blood, plan out the most brutal forms of torture. That's that's the difference, mm-hmm. and that's our intellect that has enabled us to think in those terms.
1: I'm I'm curious about this connection. You, you another another moment that you've written about in your life was um, was in Notre Dame Cathedral of all places. Um, I believe this was after the, the the loss of your your second husband to cancer. So it was a it was a very difficult time in your life, but this experience you had of awe. And it also strikes me that when you speak of our potential for moral evolution or even the greatest capacities, even the spiritual capacities that you that you saw in in chimpanzees like in in the waterfall dance, there that somehow that is connected with awe. Um, is that right? How how I, how is that capacity? Yes, what I that think so. Yeah, what is that so
0: being? I, I don't know how you would describe awe. Uh, certainly, when I was in the cathedral, it just struck me. You know, the sun was shining through the great rose window it was very early in the morning and for some reason there was a wedding or maybe it was a rehearsal I don't know but the organ came out into this Im- virtually empty because it was so early playing uh, Bach's Toccata in Fugue in G minor and it, it just hit me then you know here in this amazing building which was built with a labor of hundreds and thousands of people probably because There was none of the machinery or equipment or technology that we have today, and yet that cathedral rose up and the music, Bach who wrote it, and me standing there listening and seeing and feeling that it couldn't be just John's gyration of matter, that there had to be uh, some kind of reason behind it. And that we're here for a purpose, I very strongly feel I'm here for a reason, and I'm trying to live up to what I believe I'm supposed to be doing
1: there's um there's irony that you that you have spent these lot these years these decades now um, since um that Damascus experience of, as you say, when you realized you had to be, that you that you that you became not just a scientist but an activist, and you needed to be working with human beings in changing, in changing our relationship um, to the natural world. Um, there's just kind of this inverse, you know, the stories, the early stories. In your early writing and and the and the films, um, there's almost this this dreamlike quality to the to the fact that you, this young English woman without a college degree, were and who had always wanted to go to Africa and always loved animals. That you were able and and you were able to go work with Louis Leakey and and become a scientist and be in this extraordinary place where you were so at home. And then you have ended up. As part of the calling to that same purpose, spending most of your time outside that forest, um, not now, in the middle of the pandemic, but spending a lot of time in airplanes and on the road. Yes. Um, you sa- so I, d- I don't know, I, I, you sa- in, 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 um, you, you've asked this question in writing, what if I had known that my efforts would keep me more or less permanently on the road? would I have been strong enough, committed enough to start out along such a hard road? Um, But I sense that you still feel that the answer to that is yes. I think so. I I, I look back over my life and see all
0: these turning points when I could have done this or I needn't have done it. I think I've made the right decisions. Mm. But, you know, I mean, I never wanted to be a scientist. I never wanted a PhD. And... And I think that was such a big help. Luckily, Lewis Leakey felt the same. He didn't tell me that, but he said afterwards, I wanted a mind uncluttered by the reductionist thinking of of animal behaviorism at the time. And he also felt women made better observers and were perhaps more patient. Um, So, you know, there was, was all these little things that happened, meeting Lewis Leakey and... And uh, him taking me to Olduvai and seeing how rea- I reacted to rhinos and lions and deciding mm. I was the person he'd been looking for. But, you know, it all goes back to, to having this amazing mother. Mm. Because when I first went to Africa, invited by my school friend, uh, was 1957, and I was 23. And 23 back then... You know, it was about like a 16-year-old today, I suppose. You know, young people are so much more mature and sophisticated. But mum let me go alone on a boat to Africa. And I think most mothers wouldn't have because it wasn't done in those days. I mean, yes, young men did the, you know, the world tour. But it wasn't like students today go off and have experiences backpacking. It was totally different. And the other thing she did, which I I think helped to make me who I am, after the war, you can imagine that during the war, the sound of a German voice sent chills up one's spine. We hated the Nazis and we hated Hitler. And yet after the war, when my uncle went out to Germany, it was the English sector, he headed it up and he found a German couple with three children who wanted somebody to come and teach the children good English, and mum let me go, and she let me go because afterwards she told me, you know, just because of Hitler and the Nazis doesn't mean Germans are bad people. She wanted me to see for myself that, that we are beyond all else human beings and circumstances and culture and nationality change the way we behave. But inside it all, we're human. I think that
1: was a very good lesson for me to learn. I think it's such an important lesson to put in front of our species now because the challenges are great, kind of the existential challenge of what it means to be human in this century.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, amazingly... Although I don't think I imagined it to start with, but Roots & Shoots has developed a very strong ethical set of of moral values. And I found increasingly that those I call the alumni who were part of Roots & Shoots at school or college, you know, they hang on to those values. Mm. Like in China, people come up to me and say, but of course I care about the environment. I was in Roots & Shoots in primary school. Right now I come in all their school books it's interesting isn't it so we have a huge uh, group of young people in china who are passionate about the environment and protecting animals and all the rest of it
1: and again you know that's it's so important to hear that story which which is it which is a story of things that are happening but it's It contrasts with big, sweeping generalizations that get made, right?
0: You can't. People are too fond of generalizing. I'm always saying that. People ask me a question. uh, What do you think of such and such a a group or something? You You can't generalize each person. You know, they have their own life and their personality and their background and their dreams, and they're not going to react all in the same way just because they're in the same class or they've got the same coloured skin or wear the same clothes. And then you have to realize equally that if you're a Muslim, a Christian, a Buddhist, um, you know, it, we're all—it's actually we're all the same. And all—all all the great religions have the same golden rule: do to others as you would have them do to you. It's these fanatics who have caused this
1: horrible situation that we're in today the anti muslim sentiment right but yeah i mean i i and i and when i know we want to draw to a close i mean i do um, i think so also some we tend to turn especially in a moment where people are so fearful in their bodies right which is very hard for us to behave at our best when we're so fearful in our bodies so Confronted with uncertainty, um, but we turn these great challenges before us into big fights. And I just, you know, I mean, I want to read this. This is a passage from "Reason for Hope," and you, you said you said this a minute ago. But I, I, I don't think it can be, it can be emphasized too much um, if we think about what's before us in terms of. Um, you know, how do we how do we completely rearrange our relationship with the natural world? Um, how do we how do we remake the world um, around what has surfaced in this in this pandemic of what is simply unsustainable and inhumane? And you know, I think of you in Gombe going in to be present to Mm, mysterious kin um, of humanity and and observing and, and what you learned about approaching the other. And you know, here's something you wrote in um, Reason for Hope. It is my task to try to change, and you weren't talking about chimpanzees. you're talking about human beings, but I feel like some of the same sensibility is there. It is my task to try to change their attitude in this matter. They will not listen if I raise my voice and point an accusing finger. Instead, they will become angry and hostile, and that will be the end of the dialogue. Real change will only come from within. Laws and regulations are useful, but sadly easy to flout. So I keep the anger, which of course I feel, as hidden and controlled as possible. I try to reach gently into their hearts. There's that heart word again. Yeah.
0: Well... Well, it's lucky, isn't it? I always wanted to write. I've loved writing. Yes. And I think I was given a on purpose gifts, and one gift was a healthy body. I mean, not not too many eighty-six-year-olds can do what I was doing before the pandemic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and
0: yeah. I'm working harder now than even on a tour, I have to say. <laughs> it's, not stop. it's just I, it, from morning till night it's interviews you can hear my voice is getting hoarse yes i know but... podcasts and and video messages to sad people and emails I, it doesn't stop but um the, the what was well i've now lost complete track that's oh, all right what you, tell me what what is the, with you, you, you were, oh yes the gifts you yeah. so, The healthy body is one, but also the gift of communication. Mm -hmm. Writing and speaking, Mm -hmm. it's a gift. Mm -hmm. Do you work at it? Yes, of course. But nevertheless, it was a gift that I discovered when I was so terrified to give my first ever lecture, which was to 5,000 people in what's now DAR Constitution Hall for the Geographic in Washington, D.C. I was terrified, (laughs) <laughs> and for the first, I I swear, three or four minutes, I don't think I breathed. Although people said they didn't notice it, and then suddenly there was, five thousand people, and it was like, you know, something came, this gift. Like, yes, I can. I want to share with them. I think it's a one thing to share,
1: mm-hmm. something like
0: that.
1: <laughs> Do you have? Um... It, there's it, you've often quoted um this line that your grandmother Danny, um conveyed to you a, a biblical I think a kind of a biblical mantra yes. as thy days so shall thy strength be that's right. is that is that something that's with you okay. now absolutely, definitely,
0: and you know, I made my grandmother what we called a bible box it was six little matchboxes glued together so it was like a little chest with drawers that pulled out with a paper clip i read every single chapter of the bible it took about three months i think Mm. and it was a secret it was for her christmas present and i rolled (laughs) them up i wrote out the text on one side and where it came from in the bible on the other and um so I was setting off on one of my endless tours and Judy was seeing me off, my sister, you know, and she said, Oh, have a, have a text before you go. So I pulled out uh, a text, which read, he who has once set his hand to the plowshare and turneth back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. So Judy said, okay, off you go. (laughs) Do you know that I've had that before two other tours? I got exactly the same. We always put them back in. (laughs) Just last week when I was moaning about how busy I am, she said, I'll have a text and it came up I we both nearly I think we were speechless (laughs) and nobody else in the house has ever had that one. (laughs) You see, well
1: I my duty lies clear before me. (laughs) I I think so. I think that we all owe you a debt of gratitude for Accepting the adventures and this and and the sacrifices and the hard work that come with them. If if I just ask you uh, in closing, uh, it's a huge question, but I'm curious about how you might just start answering it today. Um, how your sense of what it means to be human keeps evolving. Well, uh, what is it? What it means to be human. What it means to be human. I mean,
0: I am prosaic. I know that we're part of a natural um, progression of life forms, um, that we're not not—we're not in, in many ways. We are so much a part of the animal kingdom. And then what's differentiated us is this intellect. I, you know, at some point earlier you talked about our intelligence, but we're not really a very intelligent species, are we, when we destroy our home, but it's our intellect. right right things anyway um so and i think i think not everyone agrees with me but i believe that the 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 a, a trigger for this development of the intellect which is so startling really was the fact that we developed this way of communicating speaking So, I can tell you things you don't know. You can tell me things I don't know. We can teach children about things that aren't present. And all that has enabled us to ask questions, like, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of it all? Is there a purpose? Is there a spiritual guiding force out there? And I believe part of being human is a questioning, a curiosity, Trying to find answers, but an understanding that there are some answers that, at least on this planet, this life, uh, this life form, we will not be able to answer. And I get kind of peeved when scientists will say, But we know how the universe started. It started with the Big Bang. (laughs) Oh, yes, but I'm sorry, but (laughs) what led to the Big Bang, please? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So, and you know what's fascinating, More and more highly intellectual people, philosophers of science, physicists, and so on, are all and Francis Collins, whom I mentioned earlier, yes, he started off as an agnostic. Mm-hmm. And then when he began unraveling the human genome, he changed completely and became a believer. And all of these great brains have said, there is no way that what's happened is just chance. So what that, what that intelligence behind the universe is, what it is, who it is, probably what it is, I haven't the faintest idea, but I'm absolutely sure that there is something. And seeking for that something is part of being human.
1: Well, Jane Goodall, thank you so much. Um, it's a real honor to speak with you and a pleasure and I I, be, I'm, I was very glad as I was getting ready for this that I'd been in your presence physically those years ago because I can imagine you and um, yeah, thank you for all the gifts you've given to all well, of us thank Really, you. And I've loved
0: talking to you and I was just going to press my video have you got a video to press so I can see you?
1: Oh, I don't actually I only have sound oh, <laughs> Yes I'm sorry. I'm sad about that. But maybe in this strange world we inhabit, we will physically be in the same place again one of these well, I days. I don't really
0: see why not.
1: Okay, good. I'm glad to hear you say that. By the way, look, I always have yeah. him with me. That's
0: his, you can see me. I can't see you. There's Rusty. See? There he is. Special, special dog. And here is Mum. Oh. Two key people in my life. And David Greybeard. David Greybeard was up here, but he's... I don't know where he's gone. But he's gone walkies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he's in the house. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, it was great thank, talking to you. Thank you I, so much. I hope that the sound isn't too bad after all their concerns and worries. I think it will be fine. It will be fine. We will make it work. And... um And it's your voice. So I wish you a lovely rest of your day. And thank you for taking this time with us.